Section 25 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Appendix Professor G. A. Smith on Recent Developments of Old Testament Criticism A striking corroboration of the statement that the shaking in Old Testament criticism is not all in one direction is furnished by the able article on Recent Developments of Old Testament Criticism in the January number of the Quarterly Review from the pen of Dr. G. A. Smith. Eighteen or twenty years ago, Dr. Smith says, everything was thought to be tolerably well settled. Now, apparently, it is mostly all unsettled again, except as to the main facts of the analysis, and perhaps the exilic date of the priestly law, the latter, a view which seems to be, to the present writer, demonstrably untenable. With three-fourths of the article one can express hearty agreement. The criticism of Dr. Shane, who, quote, stalks through the Negev and northern Arabia, sowing forests on the hills, and lifting kingdoms from the sand, unquote, of the new textual criticism of the poetical and prophetical books, quote, through which it drives like a great ploughshare, turning up the whole surface and menacing not only the minor landmarks, but, in the case of the prophets, the main outlines of the field as well." Unquote. And of the new and revolutionary Babylonian school of Winkler is trenchant and successful. It is a large admission when the writer allows that Wellhausen and Professor Robertson Smith were wrong about the dates of the patriarchal narratives, and signifies his adhesion to Gunkel in carrying back these narratives to 1200 B.C. Gunkel may still regard the narratives as legendary, though he, quote, has shown that we must read in them the style, the ideas, and the historical conditions of the ages before Moses, unquote. But we are certain that, if Dr. Smith applied his pen to the task, he could as effectively dispose of Gunkel's fantastic theory of the origin of the legends as he has done in the case of Winkler's hypothesis that the prophets were the kept agents of foreign powers. Stories such as we have about the patriarchs, with their depth of meaning and penetration with promise and purpose, are not the kind of thing that legend produces. Larger results follow from the range of these admissions than appear in the article. If the patriarchal narratives existed in 1200 B.C., who will certify that they may not have existed much earlier? If they existed then, why could they not be written then? The article has little to say on the recent discoveries on the early development of writing. 
The chief reasons for the ordinary dating of J and E fall to the ground if the narratives, as Gunkel thinks, have no mirroring of events after 900. Or again, if the narratives go back to 1200, how far are we supposed to be from the Exodus? If the Ramesses II theory of the oppression is maintained, the Exodus will fall in the opinion of recent scholars not earlier than about 1230 or 1250. Dr. Smith may put it a little sooner. In any case, on this view, 1200 B.C. takes us back so nearly to the Mosaic Age that the difference hardly seems worth fighting for. In the article some friendly criticisms are offered on the present writer's volume on the Old Testament, and certain objections are mentioned to the early date of the Deuteronomic and Levitical legislation there maintained, which are thought to be insuperable. A word may be said on these in concluding. They may not leave the same impression of insuperableness on other minds. The objections, specified, are three in all. One, that Elijah repaired and sacrificed at the altars of Jehovah, this in disproof of the existence of the law of a central altar, Deuteronomy 12. But one may well ask, what was Elijah to do after the complete suspension of political and religious relations between the northern and southern kingdoms, which ensued almost immediately after the house of Jehovah had been built? What could he do, or would he be likely to do, but just what is narrated? Fall back on the simpler forms of worship that previously had prevailed. The repairing of the altars of Jehovah does not show, at least, much sympathy with the calf worship, the flocking to the shrines of which was probably the cause of neglect of the altars. 2. That Jeremiah states, chapter 12, verse 22, that Jehovah gave no commands to Israel concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. This in proof that if the Levitical laws were extant in Jeremiah's time, he was ignorant of them. But this surely is a large and impossible inference from a passage that can quite easily be understood in a less absolute way. It involves the view that Jeremiah did not know or accept Deuteronomy in a form which included chapter 12. Quoting, all that I command you, unquote, verse 11. It overlooks that it is not the Levitical laws only that command and regulate sacrifice. Surely Jeremiah knew the book of the covenant. Compare Exodus 20, verse 24, and 23, verse 18 and was not ignorant of the sacrifices at the making of the covenant. Compare Exodus 24, verse 5 to 8. And it is contradicted by the fact that Jeremiah, like other prophets, himself pictures sacrifices and offerings as part of the order of the perfected theocracy. Chapter 27, verse 26. Compare 
33, verses 17 and 18. In any case, is it not true, according to the Pentateuch itself, that when God brought the people out of Egypt and made his covenant with them, the stress was laid primarily on moral obedience? Exodus 19, verse 5, Exodus 20, and 24, verse 7 and that the Levitical sacrifices had a secondary place. 3. A special disproof of the existence of the Levitical law is found in the narrative of the sins of Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2. Quote, the demand of these sons of Belial, as the narrative calls them, to have the flesh given to them raw, is the very thing that Leviticus enjoins, unquote. But is this criticism cogent? First, the rendering probably needs to be amended. Instead of, quote, and the custom of the priests with the people was that, unquote, etc., verse 13, the rendering of the revised version margin, quote, they knew not the Lord nor the due, that's right, of the priests from the people, unquote, has the balance of scholarly opinion in its favor. It is the rendering adopted or preferred by Wellhausen, Nowak, Klostermann, Van Hunacker, H. P. Smith, Driver, etc. Then the practice of the sons of Eli in taking their portion of the sacrifice with a hook out of the pot in which it was boiling falls into its place as an abuse. When contradiction is found in their demand to have their portion given to them raw, which was the thing the law contemplated, the accent is laid in the wrong place. The quarrel of the people with the priests was that the priests refused to burn the fat on the altar before claiming or seizing their portion. They seem to have been willing to give the priests their portion in any form desired. Why should they not? Provided the fat was first burned. Verse 16. The sons of Belial refused and helped themselves by violence when the flesh was being cooked. So far from contradicting the Levitical law, the passage testifies, one, to a right or due of the priests from the people, two, to the fact that portions were assigned them from the sacrifices, and three, to a law requiring them to burn the fat before doing anything else. There was certainly no Levitical law entitling them to neglect or postpone the burning of the fat. It looks as if the existence of the ritual laws, instead of being overthrown, was very clearly established. End of section 25. End of The Bible Under Trial by James Orr.